Before there was time, before there was anything, there was nothing. And before there was nothing, there were monsters. The Lich, Adventure Time, Gold Stars. back with our regular interview episodes in the next installment, but since our release date coincides perfectly with Halloween, we thought we should do something about it. We thought it would be the perfect time to talk about... Horror. This will be a short episode, not as long as regular ones since we won't be having any guests, but oh boy, there's so much to talk about. Let's get started, shall we? When we talk about horror, we generally mean three things. Here's a famous quote by Stephen King. The gross out. The sight of a severed head tumbling down a flight of stairs. It's when the lights go out, and something green and slimy splatters against your arm. The horror. The unnatural. Spiders the size of bears. The dead waking up and walking around. It's when the lights go out, and something with claws grabs you by the arm. And the last and worst one. Terror. When you come home and notice everything you own had been taken away, and replaced by an exact substitute. It's when the lights go out and you feel something behind you. You hear it. You feel its breath against your ear. But when you turn around, there's nothing there. The difference between horror and terror can be summed up as follows. Terror is anticipation, tension, That anxiety and paranoia that makes you constantly look over your shoulders or outside your window, through a mirror perhaps. Actually don't. It might be better if you don't look outside your window tonight. And especially not through a mirror. Not tonight. 
Horror, on the other hand, is the sickening realization that an unnatural phenomena had just taken place. Devendra Pharma in The Gothic Flame writes that the difference between terror and horror is the difference, quote, between the smell of death and stumbling against a corpse, end quote. If terror is the tension, horror, then, is the release. A good horror story, then, must have elements of both terror and horror, tension and release. Otherwise, like the fate of most horror games today, they'll end up veering into the realm of action. Or, like the fate of most horror movies today, they'll rely on cheap jump scares. James Portnow of Extra Credits makes a very good point that most horror stories today are designed to make the audience feel safe. Link in the show notes. Horror is right there inside the screen, but it gives us no legitimate reason to stay fearful after we leave the theater or put down our controllers. The ending resolves the horror in a way that doesn't make us suspicious or paranoid of the world we live in. There is no lingering fear. We'll talk about why later on, but for now, let's tackle the very basic question. Why do we enjoy works of horror in the first place? Don't you think it's a little strange? Of course, fear and disgust is an essential emotion to help us stay alive. It tells us to avoid danger. We repeatedly expose ourselves to controlled versions of fear and danger over and over again to get used to it. But of course, in practice, this quickly gets muddled in the depth and complexity of human psychology. Our fears are not always clear-cut and logical, let alone our obsessions. Without getting into the deep-end discussion of trauma and compulsion, suffice it to say that the emotion of terror the tension of perceived danger, or, more precisely, the anxiety caused by the inherently ambiguous nature thereof comes in many different forms. Forms that tell you that something is wrong. Like the flickering of lights in a hospital corridor. Or a glitching audio track. A subset of this phenomena is the fear of the uncanny. Objects, or part objects, that are at once too human-like, but not human-like enough. Something that wants to be familiar, but end up being its exact opposite. Something about them is just a little... off. The uncanny presents an incongruous overlap between a familiar desire and its exact opposite physical form, thereby showing us cracks in our language upon its attempt to give body to its manifest desire. Cognitive dissonance, a shadow of desire gone awry. And this is what makes it so scary, we have no idea what the uncanny desires. Is it there to inflict harm upon us? Does it wish us ill? Should we flee? Why does it seem like it wants to be... us? This is indeed a theme that runs through most works of horror, the doubling of the self, the doppelganger, the ghost, the evil twin, the possessed self. 
the demons we could have been, do we even know what we desire? It is as if sometime infinitely long ago, a part of our ego has been cast out of language of the normal functioning of society and has now come back to haunt us. This is why the best kinds of horror always manage to show us the worst aspects of ourselves, either by showing us the worst manifestations of a protagonist we identify with, or the dissolution of humanity and common decency in the face of, say, a zombie outbreak. This essentially is the function of the monster in works of horror, to give form to this denied other, hence providing a context for our fears. Eventual ghost? A scientific experimentation gone wrong? A psychopath lurking among trusted ones? A sudden outbreak of an alien disease? These are all contexts of similar fears, shadows of the worst parts of humanity, hiding just barely out of sight. Which brings us back to the function of fear. Horror is a fantasy that puts a face on what should be perceived as danger. All horror movies, then, is a commentary, a suggestion, on what things are considered dangerous or should be considered dangerous in the society that has given birth to it. Let's talk about the birth of the horror genre itself. Of course, scary stories as they are can be said to almost be as old as civilization itself. Sigmund Freud in Totem Taboo mentions a few key sources of ancient horror. Incestuous desires, repressed emotional ambivalence, a paranoia of the omnipotence of thought, and guilt over the death of a father. In almost every part of the world, you can find tales of demons and magic, usually passed down orally in the traditional cultures, dealing with those themes. Modern horror fiction, on the other hand, has its roots in 18th century Gothic literature. A mysterious castle on top of a hill. A thunderstorm. A lone wolf. Howling from a certain distance away. A damsel in distress, but she's alone. And she must find her way out of the dangers that lurk. Although The Castle of Otranto, Horace Walpole's 1764 book which many consider to be the first ever gothic literature, did not exactly follow such a plot, but he did open up the genre for many writers, many of whom, by the way, like Clara Reeve or Anne Radcliffe, are female. Walpole himself stated that gothic fiction, at least his, was his way of introducing the more romantic and supernatural elements of medieval prose with the gritty realism of modern novels. Around one century into the Gothic tradition, we begin to see the birth of what today has become household monsters. We see Robert Louis Stevenson with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Bram Stoker with Count Dracula, Mary Shelley with the Frankenstein's monster, and of course Edgar Allan Poe who took horror to its psychological extremes, exploring the descents into madness. Oh, and by the way, Mary Shelley is also often credited as the first modern science fiction writer, and Poe the first English-speaking detective fiction writer. Interesting genealogy of genres there, if not really entirely surprising. 
The psychology of the crime novel and the technophobias of early science fiction are, after all, commentaries on what we fear most in society. Humans are fragile and vengeful, and madness lurks around each corner of the mind. Knowing those, can we ever trust our technological inventions? Around the turn of the century, we begin to leave the Gothic setting into the Antiquarian and the Cosmic. An ancient book whose powers the character accidentally unlocks brings forth ancient demons of cosmic proportion. H.P. Lovecraft, of course, was a master of cosmic horror. Monsters with the powers of gods. And M.R. James' antiquarian horror. Malevolent gods awakened by ancient artifacts. Minor mistakes bring forth disproportionately cruel punishments in these worlds. And demises, for the most part, inevitable. If in the gothic tradition we fear the inherent madness of humanity, now we begin to fear its helplessness in the bigger picture of the world, its meaninglessness, its utter existential insignificance. Zombies were also raised from the dead during this time, although didn't gain that much traction until George A. Romero's cult movies, Night of the Living Dead in 1968 and Dawn of the Dead in 1978, followed by a slew of others in the 80s and a resurgence in 2000. Again, not entirely surprising. Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush have striking ideological parallels amidst threats from perceived enemy. And it's no wonder that society becomes afraid of the living dead at precisely those times. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. The 20th century was also the century that saw the rise of ever more visual mediums, film and comics. The result? A whole lot of gore. Becoming more visual also means becoming more sensual, visceral. Pornographic, sometimes literally so. Slasher movies and splatter comics become more and more popular as horror turns towards the gore and the gross-outs. B-movies get made and body horror gets exploited. Meanwhile, we also see that the message of horror becomes more and more moralistic. Certain kinds of people always fall victim first. Certain kinds of people always die. It's as if, at least, in the cheaper versions of horror, the ultimate master of horror is the hand of karmic justice, discriminating people based on their good deeds or bad deeds. An infamous pulp horror graphic novel in Indonesia was marketed as an actual documentary of hell. No wonder people feel safe after leaving the theater. Horror was no longer that thing lurking in the dark shadows. It was instead a set of punishments if you didn't behave. We've even gone further and fought the godlike monsters at this time. Superheroes, originally no more than masked vigilantes who fight crime, are evolving to fight more and more cosmic evil. Evil may be cosmic, but good can be too. Take a look at Japan's giant robots. Demise no longer has to be inevitable, and life no longer meaningless. All we need to do is to build better technology. This is not to say we don't have truly scary stories. Urban legends like the werewolf behind the school, 
or the serial killer going after couples whose cars broken down in the woods, enjoy an increase of popularity along with horror entertainment. Its element of truth shows that it could happen to anyone and has successfully made many young person very wary of strangers. Do you want some candy? We're not being exploited by cheap artists. Body horror can serve as a very powerful tool for psychological exploration. This is true for the neurotic alienating films of David Lynch, as well as the fatally compulsive universe of Junji Ito. It asks the question, are our desires even our own? Are our sense of obligations really a good thing? After those delineations, it's not really hard to discern that horror, like all genres, can sway both ways, conservative or progressive. Conservative horror utilizes fear, dread, and revulsion to show the functioning of a karmic justice. Progressive horror, on the other hand, utilizes those emotions to question the notion of justice itself, challenging our established perceptions of self and other, sanity and madness, pride and guilt. And this is a much more difficult challenge to tackle. We've come quite a long way from talking about aspects of horror than discussing the birth and history of modern horror literature and a bit of cinema. There's still so much ahead. Horror games, virtual reality, and other interactive multimedia works of horror that puts us in an active but disempowered pilot seat. We even have new settings now, like space horror or research center horrors, or even social network stalker horrors. I told you we had so much to talk about. But we'll leave those aside for now. What we have learned is that horror, in all its incarnations in history, is always a fixation. An obsessive compulsion to repeat the things that scare us as a culture, as a society. We need horror, because we need to learn to grapple with our fears of the worst aspects of ourselves. Sometimes horror is a disciplinary genre, a tale of moral caution. Do good as you are told, and rest assured these things won't happen to you. You are safe from the demons. But true horror, I think, are those that are brave enough to go the opposite direction, and tells us that the things, the values we have come to rely on as a society, is, and has always been, founded on some horrific primordial evil. Narrative Design has a Patreon page. If you like what we do, please check it out at patreon.com slash narrative design and consider making a small monthly donation. Should you decide to do so, we will be sure to give you a thank you call. In the dead of night. From inside your house.
is written and produced by me, Bloody Rambatown. All audio works are done by Creepy Camellia Jonathan, who also provided additional voice acting work for today's episode. We'll be back with our regular episodes next week, and you can check us out at medium.com slash narrative design podcast.